The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. This is Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels with Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul Channel. Okay, well, it is Tuesday, January 19th, 2016, and today we're going to talk about trends affecting doctors in 2016, and of course, how to make sure it doesn't kill you. And um, what do these trends mean? It looks like nothing good. So we're going to talk about these new trends, uh, what their implications are, and how you might decide uh, to respond to them. Alrighty. First, in 2016, we have a child's right to be vaccinated. Yes, right to be vaccinated. And this is brought to us by Phil Offit, and he's uh, heads up the Vaccine Education Center, or he's from the Vaccine Education Center at my alma mater, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I just want to note that, yes, there was a McDonald's in the lobby of the Children's Hospital when I trained there in 1979 to 83. I don't know if it's still there. Of course, I have not been back lately. And so, uh, Dr. Offit says, most of you know the state of California eliminated its philosophical exemption to vaccines. Therefore, the only exemptions in California are medical exemptions. Why did they do that? The reason is that Southern California, specifically Disneyland, serves as the epicenter for a massive measles epidemic, one that spread across the United States. Now, I have to say, there were no deaths, just by the way, involving about 25 states, affecting 158 people. Now, let's do the math here. 25 states, 158 people. We're talking about six people in each state. This is not hardly an epidemic. All right, mostly children. In other words, some adults. The epidemic also extended northward into two Canadian provinces where it affected hundreds more people. So if this epidemic only affected 158 people in 25 states, then person-to-person spread is not likely to be a cause. Just because... This is the definition of sporadic. 
So you think, look at the population density, take seven people, spread them out over, pick any state, Delaware, even New York, New York State, seven people. The chances of them statistically being in contact with each other is just about zip. Okay, let's, let's, let's give Dr. Offit the benefit of the doubt here. What happened in California was they asked the question, is it your right to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection? Now, potentially fatal is actually a reasonable uh, term. I think one might say remotely fatal. Uh, death from measles uh, is, is quite rare. Okay, so they decide in California the answer is no. You do not have the right to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. This is the third state that now has only medical exemptions to vaccines. Other two states are Mississippi and West Virginia, so now you guys know where not to live. The roots of this are in Mississippi. And in the late 70s, Brown versus Stone, the question that came up in Mississippi was, is it your right not to be vaccinated? The decision was made that only medical exemptions made sense. So the 14th Amendment argument was, Specifically, which states, all states of the United States, should have equal protection under the law? Even if your parents have ill-founded beliefs about vaccine safety, that doesn't mean that children should not be protected. Essentially, it became a civil rights issue. So in other words, because of the civil rights movement, we'll put it that way, uh, the civil rights issue is that each civilian has a right to equal protection under the law. That means if there's a law, it has to be applied equally. So then the next question, of course, is should there be a law? And of course, is there a law? So is there a difference between a policy and a law? So if you go to these rallies in California, Vermont, you often hear patients say, it's about my rights. It's my parental right to raise my child as I see fit. But what about children's rights? Who represents them? In this country, for example, if you're an African-American, you feel that you're being treated badly. There are places you can go with people who will represent you. As an African-American, I can definitely say uh, those so-called rights are largely imaginary, but let's continue. If you're Jewish and you feel that you're being defamed, there are groups you can go to who will defend you. But if you're a child, it's assumed that your parents represent your best interests, and that's not always true. Now, I have to pause here. I went to the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And I took some training at the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania. And we were steeped in all of this logic about the parents being the child's worst enemy, that the parents are careless, they smoke cigarettes, they're imperfect, they're uneducated, they don't know how to raise children. The list was like endless. And so, of course, many students said, wait, wait, shouldn't we then raise the children? Shouldn't, shouldn't all children be deposited at the hospital after birth and the parents only have visitation rights and, and we, the experts, should raise all children? I said, uh, uh, wait, excuse me, stop. As bad as parents are, we have found that parents are indeed the child's best option. As bad as parents are, and you can say anything you want about parents, about what they may have done or may not have done for their children, Due to our social organization, such as it is, there actually is no safer place for the child than the custody of the parents, however awful those parents might be. And that's really unfortunate. I mean, that's just the way it is. But we were taught that in medical school. So Dr. Offit's statement is at odds with what is being taught in his own pediatric classes at that pediatric hospital. Just want to say because I was there. All right, so what does he say? But if you're a child 
it's assumed your parents have your best interest at heart. But the answer is, of course, they have to go to the state, the child does. That's what's happened, frankly. In California, it's basically used a child's rights issue as a central focus of how we made a change. Get this. A little boy who had leukemia. Now, how does a boy get leukemia? From the antibiotics, from his ear infection, from the milk he drank, by the way. Okay. We'll go out to these meetings and say, what about me? Don't I have rights too? I can't be vaccinated. I depend on those around me to be vaccinated. So in the end, in many ways, it's a child's rights issue, a civil rights issue with a child. And it's a right that's protected by the 14th Amendment. Thank you for your attention. Okay. So what we have here then is, is a doctor taking the position that we need compulsory vaccination to protect that one in a million child that cannot be vaccinated. So then we have an article, an article, right, right, this is right up under this one, and it says, pertussis outbreak among vaccinated preschoolers raises alarm. That's right, pertussis among vaccinated preschoolers raises alarm. And so, alarmingly, the highest case rate, 48%, occurred in one class where all 17 pupils had received the full series. Now, no point in this article is to say maybe we should stop vaccinating because it's not working. So the highest infection rate was among vaccinated children in this particular uh, outbreak. And so despite this, the 2016 position is that Being vaccinated is a 14th Amendment issue and that everyone has to be vaccinated in order to protect those who cannot be vaccinated, even though the infection rate or case rate among those vaccinated is the highest. And so what is their conclusion? Their conclusion is that pertussis vaccine performance in preschoolers need to be monitored to determine whether the Tallahassee outbreak was an isolated event or part of an emerging epidemiologic trend. So in other words, we need more research to study the trends, not the vaccine. So this is, again, emerging uh, trend in 2016. What should you do? Answer? Now, I hate to sound uh, overly radical about this, but you, know, you may need to homeschool. You may need to live in a state um, other than uh, California. So the problem here is they, they have the data. The data is disease rates are higher in vaccinated people. Well, why don't we revisit the whole issue of vaccination? And now they're saying here's other uh, recent pertussis uptick may come from a different species. So making all kinds of uh, pertussis booster vaccines may not fight disease resurgence. And so the... It, there's got all, these, all these excuses, but, but the bottom line is the vaccines are not working. They're not working. So the, the data is showing the vaccines are totally ineffective. And the reason this is so obvious now is because the vaccine rate is so high. So the vaccine rate is high, and guess what? The infection rate is going higher. <laughs> so what else is going on uh, in uh, medical trends? Okay. New guidelines call for aggressive treatment, treatment of candidiasis. Now, many of you know, 
that I'm like really keen on getting rid of candida. One of my expertise, you know, areas of expertise. And if you haven't got it already, you can go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida and get my report. Now, this candidiasis is not the candidiasis in my report. This candidiasis is the candidiasis in hospitals, which is exclusively caused, let me repeat that word, exclusively caused by high-dose intravenous antibiotics given in the hospital that were, well, ineffective. And when I was in uh, medical school, and I would take clinical, uh, clinical, clinical rotations in the hospital, um, patient would come in, for whatever reason, they would receive intravenous antibiotics. It didn't work. It switched the antibiotics. It didn't work. Switched the antibiotics. It didn't work. And then uh, the patient would have a mysterious low-grade fever, kind of a little sluggish, you know, not very good, a little pasty. And then, of course, we're constantly doing cultures to check, 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 you know. And the cultures would come back showing candidiasis, candida, or yeast. And when that culture came back showing yeast, we just hang our heads. Why would we hang our heads? Because we knew this patient was going to die. This patient was going to die in about a week or so of the yeast infection, which was caused by all the antibiotics that we gave. And in all of my uh, four years of medical school, three years of residency training, only one patient survived this. So let's see what the article has to say. Okay, so new guidelines call for aggressive treatment of candidiasis. And they're saying, updated guidelines from the Infectious Disease Society of America, uh, IDSA, for managing candida infections recommend first-line treatment for candemia, that means candida in the blood, with an echinocandin, such as capsulfungin, rather than fluconazole, as echinocandins kill rather than inhibit these pathogens. The new guidelines, which replaced those from 209, were published on December 16th. Okay. The updated guidelines also advocate consultation with infectious disease specialists for the early identification of different candida strains. Okay, so you're going to consult with the same person who recommended the antibiotics that caused the candida in the blood in the first place. All right. Okay. I'm with you. We got you. Optimal antifungal treatment and better patient outcomes. It covers numerous topics from candidemia, neonatal candidiasis, and intravascular infections to intensive care unit prophylaxis, central nervous system involvement, and mucosal infections. So what we're saying then is they're going to, in the intensive care unit, going to try and uh, prevent these things. And this happens in neodynes, that's newborn babies who are in the NICU, this neonatal intensive care unit. And so since the last iteration, that means these a change, so these things are constantly changing, these recommendations. Why would you change the recommendation? Well, because the prior recommendation didn't work. Okay, so they're changing, they're changing, and they're changing. There's been new data pertaining to diagnosis, prevention, and treatment for proven or suspected invasive candidiasis. So now we're treating suspected, so we're treating suspicions. Now this is a real red flag. So, so on the basis of suspicions, but we don't know, we just suspect, we're going to haul out some pretty dangerous drugs here. <laughs> so, there were a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at, at Birmingham who's uh, weighing in. Now, addressing concerns about the growing prevalence of antifungal resistance, the guideline also advocates testing for azole susceptibility in clinically relevant candidia isolates. 
Testing for susceptibility should be considered in patients who had prior treatment with an akinoclat candin and among those who have infection with certain types of fungus. Now, let's just stop right here. So, the purpose of fungus worldwide, this is worldwide, is to eat up dead, decaying tissue so that the nutrients can be recycled and be available for repair and life. So that, that's what the funguses are. That's what they do. So without funguses, your plants could not grow because the funguses in the soil that eat dead, decaying material in your compost pile and liberate nutrients for the use of the plants. All right. So the same thing happens in your body. So literally, these this candidiasis in the blood is actually eating up maybe the antibiotics and protecting the body from death due to the antibiotics. Don't know. And they say increased survival compared to what? Compared to people who didn't receive antibiotics? So, again, we don't know what our baseline is. The update also recommends a step-down approach, initiating treatment with an intravenous antifungal, then switching to an oral treatment. Should be considered in patients who deteriorate with no obvious cause, have unexplained fever. Now, remember, these people are generally getting intravenous antibiotics, have an elevated white count, have recently undergone abdominal surgery, or have a central venous catheter. So the central venous catheter creates uh, infection, this by the way. So according to new guidelines, they also recommend the removal of a catheter as early as possible in candidemia. So when a candida gets in the blood, take out the catheter. And the catheter is a presumed source and can safely be removed, uh, presuming that is the case. So other intravascular devices should also be removed. So any devices you have should be removed. And early action is key. The appropriate therapy in candidiasis appears to have a significant impact on the outcome of patients with this infection. Now, again, the infection is caused by antibiotics, it's caused by these catheters, caused by these things we put in. So the sooner you take these things out, in other words, the sooner you stop causing the candida infection, the better the patient does, which is not, not a surprise. So invasive candidiasis is one of the most serious nosocomial. Now, notice the word nosocomial. So nosocomial means an infection that occurs in the hospital. In fact, patients who get candidemia are more likely to die than those whose bloodstream infections are caused by bacteria. 47%, a mortality rate as high as 47% in affected patients. And this certainly fits with my observation when I was training. It was fairly deadly. Guideline notes that more than 90% of potentially life-threatening deep tissue diseases is caused by five of the 15 fungal pathogens. And these new recommendations have been endorsed and Support for this guideline was provided by the Infectious Disease Council, and so on. But no place is the cause mentioned. No place is it mentioned. Wait, stop. Maybe we need to stop using intravenous antibiotics whenever we can. Maybe we need to stop doing the things, the interventions that cause these fungal infections in blood. I can tell you, when I was a training, not once, not once, did a patient show up in the hospital with a fungal infection in the blood. It was always induced or caused. And so what they're saying here is, oh, we have this illness, we don't know what it is, it's shocking, and we're just going to treat it aggressively. And of course, uh, it, it doesn't, it misses the point. 
So we can expect really is to see a lot more of these and just to see a lot more very expensive drugs being used. All right, what else? Cancer screening. We kind of touched on this last uh, at the last. <laughs> we kind of touched on this last time, which is um, is your doctor giving you grade B advice? And of course, if your doctor is recommending any type of cancer screening at all, then it is grade B advice. And um, and so two doctors, doctors Archie Blyer and H. Gilbert Welch. Uh, of the St. Charles Health System, uh, Portland, Oregon. In other words, not a bunch of Ivy Leaguers. This is not the New England Journal of Medicine we're hearing from. These are some guys out there in Oregon, for Christ's sake. And what do they say? Why not tell the truth? Now, obviously, these guys didn't show up in class that day where it was explained to me why we can't tell patients the truth. Because, of course, they're patients. They can't handle it. That's why we can't tell patients the truth. But let's see what Dr. Blyer and Welch say, who did not show up at that particular day in medical school class. So what they're saying is dated from 1976 through 2008. That's a lot of years. That's a lot of years. That's like, you know, 31 years, 32 years. And they concluded that screening mammography has only marginally reduced the rate at which women present with advanced cancer and that overdiagnosis may account for nearly a third of all new breast cancer cases. So at least a third of new breast cancer cases are cases that if left undetected would not have resulted in premature death. Now, they say a third. There's actually studies out there showing as much as 90%. As much as 90% of new breast cancer cases uh, I should say as much as 90% found by screening are represent overdiagnosis. But let's see what he says. So likewise, a Cochrane database system review of eight trials and 600,000 women did not find an effect of screening on either breast cancer mortality, that's death, or all-cause mortality. So in other words, getting screened for breast cancer did not reduce a woman's chances of dying from breast cancer or from death at all. This evidence caused the Swiss Medical Board, not the United States Medical Board, the Swiss Medical Board to abolish screening mammography. These are the data, and it's now clear to me that mass cancer screening does not save lives, but I'm still trying to understand how this practice became entrenched as public health gospel. It has to be more than fear. Yes, indeed, it is more than fear. How we say it matters. In other words, it's propaganda. That's my editorializing. So Dr. Geigerinzer of Germany offered a clue in his editorial, accompanying the recently published literature review analysis. He pointed to language and the ability of words to persuade. Instead of saying early detection, advocates might use the word prevention. Of course, you're not preventing anything, right? Because it's already happened by the time that you detect it. It's already cancer, so you're not preventing cancer. You're just detecting it. This, Dr. Gigrinzer says, wrongly suggests screening reduces the odds of getting cancer. Doesn't looking for cancer increase the odds of getting the diagnosis of cancer? Of course it does. So screening actually increases the odds of being labeled as having cancer. It doesn't reduce cancer, and it doesn't prevent anything. And so this doctor noted two other ways language is used to emphasize screening benefits over harms. 
reporting of benefits in relative terms, not absolute. So what you're saying is half as many women die when you screen. Not mentioning that the absolute number of lives saved is one in one million. So your death rate becomes one in one million instead of, uh, you know, two in one million. Well, for most people, that's just not a substantial difference. And so it's not reported in absolute terms, like how many people actually are benefited. Also, the equating of increase in five-year survival rates with decreases in mortality. That's just not true. So I want to add to this list of, of word misuse, the practice of referring to women's symptom mammography screening as patients. They're not patients. They are healthy people. So a woman submitting to mammography screening or screening of any kind is, by definition, healthy. Okay. So uh, Dr. Gigrinzer agreed with the common sense notion that overall mortality should be reported along with cancer-specific mortality. Now, this is what they do for prostate cancer to try and make it appear that there's a difference. Because if you look at um, all-cause mortality in prostate cancer, there's absolutely no evidence, none at all, that screening or treatment is, is beneficial. But if, they, if you say disease, disease-related mortality, that means if the person dies of something besides prostate cancer, you don't count the death, only then can you show even a slight benefit, and then it is very slight. Okay, finding a public health problem, fixing a public health problem. So, uh, his editorial included a fact box on breast cancer early detection using mammography provided by the Harding Center for Risk Literacy. I challenge you to tell me why such a text box should not be shown to people before they undergo screening. Given these revelations, I conclude that we have a massive public health problem. Any expert in problem solving will tell you the first step of getting out of the hole is to stop digging. I see three obvious next steps. First, action. Healthcare experts should take is to spread the word that there is nothing about the mass screening of healthy people for cancer that equates to health maintenance. Embrace clear language saying or implying that screening saves lives when there are no data to support it and lots to refute it. This undermines the trust in the medical profession. Yes, it certainly does. Second action healthcare experts should take is to stop wasting money on screening. If the evidence shows no difference in overall mortality, why pay for it? I'm not naive to the fact that use of clear language will decrease the number of billable procedures. I'm not saying it will be easy. One first move that would be less painful would be to get rid of quality measures or incentives that promote screening. Now, let's take a look at this. What's a quality measure? Doctors are actually evaluated by the percent of their patients that submit to an annual physical exam. These are doctors who are employed. They're actually evaluated by the percent of their patients who receive pap smears, who receive, and it's a, it's a screening test, a pap smear. They receive mammograms. They receive colonoscopies. They're actually, doctors are actually evaluated by their employers based on these measurements. These measurements, instead of calling, being called uh, revenue-generating measures or profit-generating measures, they're called health quality measures, quality measures, when obviously they have no correlation with the quality of care, but they're called quality measures. For example, when I was in the wilderness, 
uh, one quality measure was, uh, you know, the vaccination percentage among children, when it actually had nothing to do with uh, the health of children. So I want to be clear. I'm not saying all cancer screening is worthless. People at higher baseline risk for cancer, such as also the family history of cancer or environmental exposures, might drive, derive more benefit than harm from screening. The answer is might. Notice the word might. Now, whenever someone's talking about the medical industrial complex, they have to couch this and say, well, you know, I'm just saying everything I've seen is worthless. I'm not saying there might be something worthwhile that I haven't seen yet. So this guy, these guys are trying to keep their license, so we have to kind of give them a little bit of slack here. People at higher baseline risk for cancer. Okay. So they say these group of patients would be a good place to spend future research dollars. That sounds reasonable. I also acknowledge that some people, even when presented with the evidence, will want to proceed with screening. We can argue about who should pay for non-evidence-based medical procedures. Now, who should pay when someone <laughs> wants a medical procedure that is proven to be of no benefit? Who should pay for that? Who should pay for your your motorcycle? Who should pay who, who should pay for your bicycle? Who should pay I mean all these things are not medically necessary, but they may be the things that you'd like to have. So the question is who should pay for them? I think it's an open question. Maybe you should pay, maybe your relative should pay, maybe a stranger should pay. I don't know. But I think it's worth considering who should pay for a discretionary uh, procedure that happens to be performed in a hospital. A procedure, when I say discretionary, I mean, of course, all procedures should be discretionary. Now that you should not do anything a patient doesn't consent to, on the one hand. But on the other hand, if the procedure is proven not to enhance health, that's what I'm saying. So if a procedure is unrelated to health and not proven to enhance health, then the question is who should pay for it. I think that's a reasonable question. Personally, I think uh, the patient should pay for it. Why? Because if the patient pays for it, it's a lot less likely you'll have it done, and all these procedures that have zero benefits have complications. And so it's a lot less likely the patient will be harmed, and that number of 880,000 people killed every year by uh, medicine will fall. That's why I think people should have to pay for these things, because then they'll do less of it. So the most important action that all of us, that's us, (laughs) patients, nurses, doctors, healthcare writers, should take is to learn from this revelation. There is nothing bad about the fact current-day screening tests don't save lives. Cancer is a tough disease, and in some ways, it may be the natural order of cell biology. What's bad about this medical reversal has been our blindness to the evidence. We let what we believe become what we know. In clinical medicine, this should never, it should be a never event. For those of you who aren't medically steeped in the jargon, a never event is an event defined Um, by the government or the medical profession as something that should never, ever happen because it is so extremely dangerous to the health of patients. So letting what people believe become what doctors or the medical profession know is is a problem. And so this is uh, a 2016 trend, which is that independent doctors far away from medical centers uh, are developing these ideas. Uh, the bad news, of course, is that these screening guidelines are still um, etched in stone as far as the average doctor is concerned. So if, you have a, if you're seeing a physician who's employed, who's dependent upon his paycheck, uh, a paycheck, 
then he's got to adhere to these guidelines because he's actually being evaluated based on his adherence to the standard of care. And while these doctors may have written this very nice um, editorial, it does not represent a change in the standard of care. So that's it for 2016. What to look forward to? What's the answer? The answer is skip the annual exam. Yep, skip the annual exam. That's the answer. Just don't show up for the annual exam. All right. Who overprescribed antibiotics? The data tell all. Now, this is uh, very interesting. So it's a variation in outpatient antibiotic prescribing for acute respiratory infections, uh, that's the common cold, in the veteran population across sectional studies. So a retrospective, it means you look back in the past, Cross-sectional studies, it means they took uh, cross-sections based on uh, time. Of patients in the Veterans Affairs Health System show that antibiotic prescriptions for the common cold continue to rise with significant variation in prescribing practices among providers nationally. So if you look at all the VA households across the nation, there are some doctors who use lots of antibiotics for the cold, others who use less antibiotics, incredible variation. Okay, so we know that viruses account for most upper respiratory infections in ambulatory care settings. And most of these infections resolve on their own. Yep. Yet, empirical antibiotic therapy for common viral ailments, including sore throats, bronchitis, and sinusitis, remains a practice that has provided proven stubborn to shake. Now, why has that been stubborn to shake? There's a lot of reasons why it's been stubborn to shake. Of course, they're not addressed in this uh, document. But uh, one reason why they are stubborn to shake is because patients expect an antibiotic. But an even bigger reason why they're uh, difficult to change is if doctors don't ha- prescribe an antibiotic, and they just hand out reassurance and a pat on the head and maybe a little Band-Aid just like Remy would do, the patient would think, well, why am I even going to go to the doctor for a common cold? And any primary care doctor will tell you Fully a fourth to a third of his business is the common cold. If patients stop showing up for, for a cold or a sinusitis, you would shut down most family practice doctors. So the doctor, almost as a, as a mode of self-defense, needs to prescribe something for this common cold. Otherwise, the patient will quickly determine after the second or third do-nothing visit that he might as well stay home. So that's if you ask me, the real underlying reason why antibiotics are prescribed so much for a common cold, for which we know they are totally ineffective. All right, so antibiotics were prescribed in more than two-thirds of the visits with a diagnosis of cold, with almost one-half of these prescriptions being for a macrolide, read very expensive, erythromycin-based or derivative agent. Predictors of antibiotic prescribing include a diagnosis of sinus or, uh, sinusitis or bronchitis, High fever is temperature more than 102 degrees, and visits occurring in an urgent care setting. So again, what the doctor wants to do is justify in the patient's mind why he showed up. And so the doctors don't want patients going to the conclusion, I might as well have stayed home, and staying home the, second, the next time around. Among providers who saw at least 100 patients with colds during the study period, the proportion of visits with and without antibiotics were calculated. 
The highest 10% of providers prescribe antibiotics during more than 95% of their visits for the common cold, whereas the lowest 10% prescribe antibiotics during less than 40% of visits. That's still a pretty high use. This provider-level variation remained dominant even after adjustment for clinic and medical center-level antibiotic prescribing trends. And so, although this study used administrative data with limited insight into other key factors that could have affected the decision, it provides a population-level snapshot of antibiotic prescribing patterns across a large health system. Now, important take-home message for anyone listening is if you have a cold, antibiotics are basically not appropriate. So if you have a cold, first of all, you shouldn't even go to the doctor, number one, but two, if you do show up and you get a prescription for antibiotics, just don't fill it. It's easy. But the real deal here is the ability to reach into the office visit and surveil exactly what is going on. And so this technique whereby this study was done has now been advanced because of electronic health records, EHRs, to real time. Real time means that the person controlling the purse strings in the practice can see real time what doctor prescribed what, how it affected the bottom line, and give that doctor immediate feedback telling him exactly what to prescribe next time around to maximize profits. So this means then for 2016, and your office visit is that you and your doctor are not alone. Yes, you are not alone. And your doctor's decision, his answer as to what's going to happen in that office visit has already been determined before you showed up. And this uh, predetermination is even more compelling, more so than it was uh, in 2012 when I first mentioned it. So now what you have, you have a doctor being under surveillance, really full, uh, real time. So a doctor can get feedback about his office visit right there on the spot. And you may even start getting telephone calls from your doctor changing his therapy. You may get home to know you have a message from your doctor. And you call him, he says, hey, don't take that antibiotic uh, or don't fill the antibiotic or something to that effect. So this is what you have to look forward to in 2016 is that big brother is... Uh, much closer than ever, and that your doctor is under real-time surveillance. Solution, of course, don't don't show up. Second solution, don't fill the script. Uh, and the third solution is see a doctor that is self-employed. That doctor is not under surveillance, or I should say he is under surveillance, but not as close. He'll get his negative feedback maybe a week down the road, not within hours or minutes. And so you have a bigger chance of... Um, your doctor listening to you and maybe getting some kind of reasonable uh, response from your doctor that has something to do with what you complained of. Okay. And that leads into our next development for 2016 is seven choices for doctors who are wary of employment. So doctors have said, hey, wait a minute. I don't want to be an employee because if I'm an employee, I've got to do all these things that are questionable. All these things that ethically are, are uh, bad news or that um, are harmful to my patient and make me feel bad. Okay. So what are they saying to these doctors who don't want to get caught up 
and being an employee and working for the health center or the HMO instead of working for the patient. Okay. To date, okay, ACOs, Accountable Care Organizations. So they exist in areas where, where there are clients that most of them don't have contracts. Bundled payments, okay, let's go back to the beginning here. Like, yeah, this is not it. Not uh, adding up. So way back in the old days, this would be 1990-something, I was a uh, private practice doctor. That means that... Um, I was not employed by an HMO or a hospital or whatever. So what I did was uh, people come to my office, they would pay me, and I would examine them, and I would tell them, best of my knowledge, what I thought they should do, what their choices were, what might or might not work for them. So I had no influence on my decision other than what the patient wanted and what my uh, knowledge was. So I wasn't compelled to uh, do so many mammograms or so many colonoscopies or so many of anything. So I had no um, APIs. I had no uh, profit indicators uh, that were assigned to me by a third party. And so employment is not a panacea. So what doctors are now finding is having a job is not doesn't solve all their problems. In fact, it comes with it many, many more problems. So there's a shift to value-based reimbursement. That means how valuable is the service that you're providing to the government or to whoever sets standards, not how valuable is it to the patient. So this is a real red flag uh, for 2016. So uh, your doctor is going to be getting value-based reimbursement. He's going to get reimbursement based on the perceived value of what he's doing, the perceived value basically to the insurance company since, of course, they're handling the reimbursement. So it's placing smaller practices at a disadvantage. Even where physicians have learned how to use electronic health records effectively. In traditional visit-based care, they need a more sophisticated infrastructure and additional resources to manage their patient population. So more sophisticated infrastructure and additional resources to manage the population. This sounds really complex. It just means doctor overhead is getting very, very high. And why is doctor overhead so high? Doctor overhead is high because of the MBAs who are making these rules for increased um, record-keeping, increased automation. And so the doctors are basically being made to pay for all the expensive machinery and computers needed to put them and the patients under the direct surveillance of the government and of the uh, bean counters, or um, I guess you could say really money managers. So as a result of these changes, experts say, independent physicians should start thinking about how to form clinically integrated networks with their colleagues. Now, when you form a clinically integrated network with your colleague, uh, basically you're no longer practicing alone. So now what you do is influenced by your colleagues, by these networks, by these agreements. And so what this piece of information the doctors is trying to do is trying to get them to voluntarily give up even more of their freedom. And the less freedom the doctors have, 
per se. But the less freedom you as a patient have to come to them and say, hey, I have this problem, what do you think? Literally, as, as long ago as 1993, uh, as a doctor, I was asked to find agreements where I agreed to keep secret from the patient certain clinical options. I agreed, if I find it, I didn't find it, uh, to these agreements, asked me to agree to not reveal to the patient any therapies not covered by his insurance. Amazing. And so you can imagine then these agreements and the impact uh, that they have on your doctor. So if your doctor is accepting your insurance, then he's basically abiding by these types of agreements where he has agreed to not engage in activity or give you information that might decrease the profitability of your insurance companies. So physicians who see the changes coming but don't want to be employed, there are alternatives to employment that physicians should consider. And so hospital acquisitions are slowing down, which means that um, hospitals are not buying up doctor practices uh, like they used to. And so hospitals on the East Coast and in parts of the South are still buying practices as a healthcare consultant in Grand Rapids, but in areas where most of the consolidation between hospitals and practices has already occurred, such as West Michigan, Detroit, Chicago, Minnesota, Seattle, that's no longer the case. So they're saying is if you don't want to be an employee, then in some cases you can sell your practice to the hospital. Huh. Definite uh, reduce in autonomy there. Now, as in, in, uh, in Syracuse, um, the hospital that I had privileges at bought the practice of another family practice doctor. And I said, oh, my gosh, they bought his practice. They handed him a lump of money and let him continue to work in his office. Like, you know, it's easy to say, wow, he's so lucky. That's what I thought, right? But then I found out, like, he was not happy at all. Not happy at all. Why wasn't he happy? Because the, the hospital gave him targets of how many patients he had to hospitalize, how many of certain x-ray tests he had, to, he had to order, and they were very unhappy when he did not hit those targets. And he was very unhappy when he did not hit those targets. Because, of course, uh, you know, it affected, uh, you know, his, his revenue at the same time he was upset because, of course, he didn't order the test because he didn't think they were necessary. So uh, that was a problem, that all of a sudden he was not allowed to refuse to do a test just because he thought it wasn't necessary. Because, of course, well, it was necessary. And it was very necessary because the hospital needed the test to be ordered, um, you know, to generate revenue. This was this was a very serious matter. That's why they paid him this money for his medical practice. They expected to have input into it. So, what they're now saying then is another article, 2016 trend: small and solo family practices provide critical services. All right. 
So more than half of family physicians seeking board certification work in small and solo practices. And their role remains vital in the transformation to value-based care. Now, so in other words, half of family practice physicians are beyond the control at the moment of the medical industrial complex, the degree of control we would like to have. And their coming under this umbrella is vital in the transformation to centralized care. Now they're calling it value-based care. And so what's going on here then is they're trying, again, to get physicians who are independent to give up that independence. And and here they're telling doctors, uh, we're going to transition to value-based care. And again, if you look at the values, the values are not the values of the individual patient. It's the values of this vague, amorphous thing called society. And so what you do then is you take a look at, uh, so say the person in front of you would like to get pregnant and have a baby, says, well, looking at social societal trends and, and government goals and social objectives, you really shouldn't be having a baby, so we're not going to work on giving you any advice that might help facilitate that. Or the opposite. A woman might say, well, you know, I really don't want to have a baby. Well, you know, looking at social objectives and government goals and guidelines, you really should be having a baby. So what it comes down to then is when you move to value-based care, the personal goals and objectives of the patient become irrelevant. It becomes not a consideration at all. And so so this article is written uh, with the assistance of... uh, I would say, you know, major uh, PR departments. So what they're saying is our findings have implications for the future of family medicine. And this is a a person with an MD and a master's in public health. This is is what I told you. Notice he understands the importance of putting social objectives above the objectives of any one individual patient. First, smaller practices may be missing out on a new payment model that have dependent on patient-centered medical home certification. And so now we have a doctor getting yet another certification. We found the likelihood of having a care coordinator and certification increase with practice size. So now each practice has to have a certified individual. And so, again, this is to do what? To make the health call. So we found the likelihood of having a certified individual increase with practice size and, of course, the increase Certification means they can bill more, bill who, bill Obamacare. And, of course, the more that you bill never compensates fully for the increased amount of money you have to pay the certified individual to be present at the practice uh, during operating hours. Second, we lack evidence regarding whether changes in practice size are associated with reduced cost or improved patient satisfaction, they explain. Well, I can definitely tell you my little one-person practice had very high patient satisfaction and very, very low cost. And even before I went into medical practice, I went and talked to all the different doctors who were in practice. And the old timers who had them and their wife, the receptionist at the front desk, they had the absolute lowest revenue. Their medical records were kept on five by seven cards that they filed in a little a little drawer. I mean, you, you couldn't get much lower uh, cost profile than what they had. And so for them to say that uh, a smaller practice may not be associated with lower overhead is uh, it's disingenuous. It's just, they're just not being honest. So when does joining 
a PCMH makes sense. So being part of these uh, patient-centered medical home certification programs makes sense in certain cases. And the big picture here is that your doctor is being pressured to join different organizations and different structures that will literally dictate his practice behavior and totally eclipse any um, preference you may have uh, one way or another. And it makes a very rigid uh, doctor and a very uh, dangerous and actually unsafe uh, situation for patients. So we have five minutes left, and there's a lot of questions in the chat room, but if you have questions on the, on the line there, you can um, click your question button. But the most important thing to understand about these predictions, honestly, the predictions are not predictions, they're realities for 2016. The predictions, what's the impact that they're going to have? So the, the prediction, my prediction for 2016 for the impact is that doctors will become more rigid. They will have fewer um, choices in terms of their ability to uh, listen to what a patient's complaining of. A patient may be complaining of a headache, and they'll say, I'm sorry, we're treating, we're treating knee pain this, uh, today, so uh, you'll have to come back on our headache day, which would be Friday, or accept this knee medication. So um, that's what they do. So monthly office hours, someone's asking, has not ended. We are still having monthly office hours. It is the second Thursday of the month. And you can go to vitalitycapsules.com and click office hours to sign up for monthly office hours. So go to vitalitycapsules.com and sign up for office hours there. Okay. All right, people are asking about the tuberculosis uh, situation. Okay, so what's to know about tuberculosis? Macrodamus, there's been an outbreak, just been an outbreak of tuberculosis in Alabama. The reports have claimed three people have died of it so far. So they're trying to get everyone tested. They're even going so far as to pay everyone who gets tested, in particular areas, $100 to get tested. Could you talk about tuberculosis quickly? What cures it naturally if you find out you have it? Okay, so all we can talk about immediately is how to not get tuberculosis. Tuberculosis has, is and has always been a disease of milk consumption. So if you stop your milk and cheese consumption, you're pretty safe. Some reason it's simply milk and cheese. Other milk products I'm not sure about. I'm not, I don't think it's an issue with butter, but definitely milk and cheese. That's uh, what causes it. As far as how to treat it, first step is stop the milk and cheese because your body actually is able to clear it very nicely. Tuberculosis is a very slow, slow, slow infection. So the way to die from tuberculosis is if you smoke cigarettes, uh, drink alcohol, and have a high milk intake. So it's totally within your control. Uh, you know, stop your dairy products, switch your cigarettes to organic, or quit your cigarettes, whatever you're able to do, and cut back your alcohol. As far as getting tested, I would not get tested for tuberculosis. I would just say, look, I don't want to get tested. Let's presume I have it already. I don't want, I don't want any tests at all. If you want to treat me for it, fine, but don't. I'm not testing it. And then when you do uh, get down to therapy, therapy is pills. All you do is cheek the pills, pretend to take them, but don't take them. And that that would be the way to do it. But don't um, don't agree to testing because testing involves um, injecting stuff into you, and you just don't know what they are actually injecting into you. 
since what they're trying to do, of course, is to create an epidemic. And uh, you don't want to get caught up in, in that um, that circus. Okay, we have got 17 um, seconds left. Dr. Dance, I heard someone saying that eating the same foods every day all the time will eventually create problems. That's true. The problems they create is malnutrition. So if you eat the same food, a, a very short selection every day, it will cause uh, problems generally due to malnutrition. All right, that is it for today. Definitely encourage people to sign up for monthly office hours to have the questions answered. And that is at vitalitycapsule.com forward slash, actually just vitalitycapsule.com, and you can click office hours at the top and sign up. So that is it. We'll see you again next week. And as always, think happens and definitely avoid the doctor.